Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. We are in Isaiah chapter 60 tonight. There are only seven chapters, including tonight, until we reach the end of Isaiah. Which means, if you have any ideas about what book you think we ought to begin in the new year, let me know. I will tell you that I am leaning toward, rather than going to Jeremiah and continuing to pound away at the same themes that I think we've seen very clearly in Isaiah, thinking about going back to the poetry books and might spend some time in the book of Psalms if I can figure out a suitable way to approach them. So that's my opinion. If you have another opinion, by all means, let me know. You folks on the Internet, you know where to find me. Jim at SalvationByGrace.org. Let me know what your opinion is. I think by now in the book of Isaiah, you really ought to have a good feel for the major themes of the book. And the major themes are so very much like what we find in the New Testament where salvation is concerned. Because what we've seen repeatedly is Israel's absolute guilt. That they are depraved, they are chasing other gods, they have broken God's law continuously, and he states over and over what their sin is. He repeats it to them over and over so that they understand how completely guilty they are and he has pointed out how incapable they are of saving themselves. You've heard me say for many years now, the solution to your problem cannot be you. Same thing for Israel. The solution to Israel's problem cannot be Israel because Israel is depraved and sinful. And so then we have seen God repeatedly say, I'm going to punish you for your sinfulness, but I'm not going to lose you. Because the second theme that we see in the book of Isaiah is this glorious future for Israel that just keeps coming up and coming up and coming up. And the contrast throughout the book is absolutely huge. The contrast is between horribly guilty, God-hating, law-breaking sinners being saved by the grace of a glorious God who made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their forefathers, and then makes promises of a glorious future to those selfsame people. And in the midst of the book, he tells us how he's going to accomplish that through his suffering servant. And that pretty much is the gospel. When we get to the New Testament and we read that we ourselves are depraved, sinful people, and then you ask the question, well, then how can anybody be saved? The answer repeatedly is grace. It has to be grace. It has to be the kindness of God or else nobody gets saved. So the big picture, the big story that God is telling and has been telling for thousands of years hasn't changed. Whether we're talking about Isaiah, whether we're talking about Paul, who leans very heavily on Isaiah, or even as we're going to see tonight, the book of Revelation leans on this part of Isaiah. And this part of Isaiah, Isaiah 60, is once again God promising this astoundingly glorious future to Israel. I heard just today a very popular post-mill online guy doing some teaching out of Isaiah 40 and 41. And because he was talking within the confines of God's sovereignty in salvation, he kept declaring that these things were true, completely true, literally true, had to be true. But of course, he completely ignored 
the parts of Isaiah that also say, oh yeah, and glorious future for Israel. Because his theology, his eschatology, demanded that he ignore all that. And yet it was amazing to me to hear him say that these things are literally true in an isolated sense within Isaiah. So let's put up a ground rule for a moment. If you're going to argue that some part of Isaiah is literally true, like Isaiah 53 and the coming of Christ and the dying of the suffering servant for the saints, for all his people, if that's literally genuinely true, then you don't have the jurisdiction to say that other parts of Isaiah are not true. You got to take the whole thing. You either say none of it's true or you say all of it's true. And if all of it is true, that's the stance I'm taking, all of it is true. And if that's true, that means Isaiah 60 is true. And wait till you hear what Isaiah 60 promises. So if you believe that Isaiah 53 is a true representation of Christ to come, and if you believe that Isaiah 40 and 41 are literally true in God's control over human history, then you also have to say that Isaiah 60 is true, and therefore it's impossible to deny God's faithfulness to national Israel. Isaiah 60, starting at verse 1. Well, no. We can't do that. Isaiah 59, starting at verse 20, because this is all the same thought. And a redeemer will come to Zion. Some of your translations will say a redeemer will come from Zion, because there's no real telling what the pronoun should be in the Hebrew language there. In fact, I don't think the pronoun exists. I think it's added for English translation. Is that correct, Steve? Redeemer will come Zion. Come Zion. That's what I thought. Yeah. And so translators have added the adverb to give you some sense of whether he's coming to Zion or from Zion. Either way that you read that, you still have to admit that the Redeemer and Zion, Jerusalem, are intimately connected. He's coming to Zion. He's coming from Zion. Either way you want to read that, I agree. Because he's from Zion and he's coming to Zion, as we're going to see in the remainder of this chapter. A redeemer will come to Zion. And to those who turn from transgression in Jacob. Let's be very specific. Who's Jacob? Jacob is Israel. But whenever God wants to remind national Israel of their sinful estate before him, he calls them by the name Jacob. Heel catcher, supplanter, liar. That's who you are. You're sinners. And I am your redeemer. To those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord, that's who the redeemer is coming to from Zion. And as for me, this is my covenant with them. With who? With Jacob, with Israel. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit which is upon you, speaking to the prophet, and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring, offspring, says the Lord, from now on and forever. In other words, Israel is going to continue generation after generation, knowing that God himself is their redeemer and understanding the depth of their own sinfulness and rebellion, and that without him, they have no hope of salvation, and yet the promise of salvation is right here. So much so that verse 1 now says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. You who? Israel. Israel. Remember, this is all about Israel. Arise, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And behold, here's particularity on God's part. Behold, darkness will cover the earth. And a deep darkness will cover the peoples. I think that is a pretty good explanation for what's going on in the world even today. Obviously, he's talking about a spiritual darkness. And remember that Paul said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers 
and the rulers of the darkness of this world. And so God himself in his sovereignty says, behold, look, pay attention. Darkness will cover the earth and a deep darkness will cover the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, Jacob, Israel, and his glory will appear upon you. And nations, the Gentiles, the Goyim, and nations will come to your light. And kings will come to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes round about and see. They are all gathered together and they all come to you. And your sons will come from afar and your daughters will be carried in their arms. How often have we seen this promise from God in the book of Isaiah where he takes credit for the fact that he scattered Israel. Jacob, collective, 12 tribes, he scattered them ever since the Assyrian captivity, ever since 70 AD. All of Israel scattered. And yet the promise that we see over and over and over again is God saying, I'm going to go to all the places that I scattered them and I'm going to redeem them and I'm going to bring them back. Well, here's the promise yet again. They're all going to gather together. They're all going to come to you. Your sons, your offspring are going to come from afar and your daughters will be carried in their arms. And then you will see and you will be radiant. You're going to be overwhelmed with happiness. You're going to shine in the light of God and your heart will thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you and the wealth of the nations will come to you. In other words, all of the vessels that are out at sea, they're going to gather it, but they're going to bring it to you. And the wealth of the nations is going to come to you. A multitude of camels is going to cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba will come. And they will bring gold and frankincense. And will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. All the flocks, all the sheep, all the cattle, all the flocks of Kedar will be gathered together to you. And the rams of Nebaioth will minister to you. And they will go up with acceptance on my altar. In other words, I'm going to have such an abundance of sheep and goats and animals that you can kill on my altar. I'm going to make sure that my altar is always full to overflowing in sacrifice, praise, and worship to myself. And I will give you all these Gentile goats and rams to sacrifice and they will go up with acceptance on my altar and I shall glorify my glorious house. Okay, so God is saying, by the way, at this moment that sacrifice in his house, sacrifice of animals that have been brought from Gentile nations are going to be the way that he is going to glorify his glorious house. Now, as we're going to see in a moment, this chapter has not come to its fulfillment yet. This chapter has not come to its completion yet. I'll tell you in advance, this is like coming attractions. Before the evening is over, you're going to see that portions of this chapter are picked up by John at the very end of the book of Revelation. So John himself takes the events of this chapter and casts them out into the future to John. And if he was writing on the Isle of Patmos... 92 to 96 AD, then you've got to ask yourself, okay, when did this ever happen? When did the Gentile nations and the wealth of those nations ever flow to the house of God in Jerusalem? When did that ever take place? Well, then it's out into the future. Well, out in the future, God is going to glorify his glorious house through the sacrifice of animals on his altar. That is the same thing, by the way, that Ezekiel says is going to happen when he describes the temple that is yet to be built and the reestablishment of temple sacrifice. And as much as people want to argue about that, and as much as people want to debate about that, as much as people want to try to figure out theologically how that's possible, considering that Christ was the final sacrifice, according to the writer of Hebrews, the simple fact is, it's what Ezekiel says. Simple fact is, it's what Isaiah says. The simple fact is, it's what God says. 
that he is going to glorify his glorious house by bringing animals from the Gentile nations to be sacrificed acceptably. He's going to sacrifice them with acceptance on my altar in his glorious house. So whatever else you want to say about that, however you want to argue about it theologically, and we don't have time to go into all of that nuance tonight, but no matter how you deal with it, I have to say again, it's either all true or none of it's true. And if God says that ultimately, someday, he's going to continue sacrifice on his altar to glorify his glorious house, our answer has to be, yes, sir. Yeah, whatever you want to do. Because even though we can't sort it out theologically, do you think God can? Yes. I'm sure that he can. All the flocks of Kedar will be gathered together to you, and the rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you, and they will go up with acceptance on my altar, and I shall glorify my glorious house. Who are these who fly like a cloud? And like the doves flying to their lattices. Doves flying to their lattices is, have you ever seen a bird in the house? Have you ever opened the door and a bird flies into your house? I can remember one time at my grandmother's house years ago. When I was a little kid. She opened the front door there in Dearborn, Michigan, and a bat flew in the house, came right in the front door. Well, they don't go to the floor. Winged creatures go up. They fly up into the lattices of the roof. They fly up. And so that is the image that God is using here. The same way that doves fly up into the lattices. That's how I'm going to be raising up Israel. Lifting them up. Bringing them to their glory. Who are these who fly like a cloud way up in the sky? Like doves up into their lattices. Surely the coastlands will wait for me. We have seen reference to the coastlands repeatedly in the book of Isaiah. The furthest distance west from Jerusalem would be the coastlands that run along Spain and run along France, Portugal, that area, and then out to England, to the Tin Islands out there. And so those are the furthest distances that God has scattered his people. So when he makes reference to the coastlands, he's talking about his people that have been scattered as far away as the coastlands. And yet he says, the coastlands are waiting for me. The ships of Tarshish will come first. Tarshish was one of the largest trading and shipping communities in the Middle East. The ships of Tarshish brought great wealth and brought stuff from far away. And yet these ships of Tarshish are going to come first to bring your sons from afar. And their silver and their gold from the ships, their silver and their gold is going to come with them. For the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified you. Who's you? Israel. Israel. Okay, so there's a firm promise from God right there. The very word of God in an undeniably true book that has proven itself to be true historically, which has proven itself to be true prophetically. Right in the midst of that book, it says, the name of the Lord your God is the reason that he's going to do all of this. He's glorifying himself. He's glorifying his own house because he is the Holy One of Israel, a name that we have seen repeatedly in the book of Isaiah. And the Holy One of Israel is the one who's going to glorify Israel. And foreigners, Gentiles, your enemies, are going to build up your walls. And their kings are going to minister to you. For in my wrath, in my anger, I struck you. I did punish you. I did correct you. This is why the writer of Hebrews says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He corrects every son that he receives. Same thing with Israel. In my anger, in my wrath, I struck you. But in my favor, in my kindness, by my grace, I have had compassion on you. Did they deserve to be redeemed? No. How did God do it? By grace 
and sovereign compassion because that is the character and the nature of God. The same way that you want the grace and the compassion of God. You do not want God to judge you on the basis of you. But that theology of God not judging people on the basis of their works is first introduced to Israel, who God says very clearly and repeatedly are nothing but guilty, 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 so that there's no chance that they can help themselves. And then God explains why he's going to glorify them. He's going to do it because of his own grace, his own kindness, his own compassion, even though in his anger he's going to strike them. He scattered them. He punished them. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had compassion on you. And your gates will be open continually. They will not be closed day or night, by the way. That's the first place where you're going to see a connection to the book of Revelation. Because when we get to the New Jerusalem passages in Revelation 21 and 22, one of the things we're going to find out about the gates there, which, by the way, who remembers? What are the names that are above the gates? The Twelve tribes of Israel. And those gates are always going to be open. To who? To Israel, whose names are above the gates. That's the end of the book of Revelation. Are you feeling a theme here? <laughs> Your gates will be open continually. They will not be closed day or night. So that men may bring to you the wealth of the nations. And with their kings who will lead them in the procession. So even their kings, even their rulers are going to be participant in bringing the wealth of the nations to Jerusalem to worship the only God who is. For the nation and the kingdom, which will not serve you, will perish. In fact, Zechariah says that the nations that fought against Israel during the thousand-year millennium, during that period of time where there's peace in Israel, are going to be required to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And we're told that any of them that don't, God is going to judge them and put plagues on them. So here is God yet again defending Israel from all the Gentile nations who have ever attacked them. For the nation and the kingdom which will not serve you, I'm going to wipe out. They're going to perish. And the nations will be utterly ruined. The glory of Lebanon will come to you, the forest of Lebanon, where all the trees came from. You may recall that David when he was building his house of cedar, that the cedars came from the king of Lebanon. That's where the best lumber and timber would come from. The glory of Lebanon will come to you, the juniper, the box tree, and the cypress together to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I shall make the place of my feet glorious. So all of this so far is about God glorifying himself. And part of the way he glorifies himself is by demonstrating his graciousness and compassion to people who simply cannot and do not deserve it for his own worship and for his own glory. So he is going to make sure that the wealth of nations comes in to Jerusalem so that he can beautify and glorify the place of his sanctuary and make the place of his own feet glorious. And the sons of those who afflicted you are going to come bowing down in front of you. And all those who despised you will bow themselves at the soles of your feet. And they will call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Eventually, according to Israel, according to God, that Gentile nations are finally going to admit that the only God who actually exists is the God of Israel. The only God who has demonstrated himself throughout history. The only God who can actually glorify himself. The only God who can actually think and speak. The God who here in Isaiah said in challenging the other foreign gods and the idols, 
he said, which of you can tell the future? I do it. And then he went on and said, and which of you can tell the past and why it happened? Because it's all happening according to his plan. And he continues to demonstrate his singularity, his sovereignty, his supremacy by the fact that he not only declares the future in prophecy, but that he is the only God who can explain the history of the world to you in a way that actually makes sense. Because he can tell you not only what happened, but why it happened. Because it's all according to his plan. They, the Gentiles, are going to call you, Jerusalem, the city of the Lord, the city of Yahweh, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, with no one even passing through you, they were, in fact, destitute. God did, in fact, scatter them. I will make you an everlasting pride. A joy from generation to generation. Okay, quick question. Has that happened yet? No. Nope. Is Jerusalem at this moment a source of great pride for all the Gentile nations and kings? No. We'd have to say no. But is that promise true? Yes. We just read a very plain, very clear promise from God. Is it true? Well, then it has to come to pass. The same way that on Sunday we were looking at the introduction to the book of Revelation, and we read that God gave a revelation to his son, who then gave it to an angel to bring to John his slave so that John could show it to his other slaves, the things which must come to pass shortly or quickly. Have to. It has to happen. Same thing here in Isaiah. This has to happen. And that means it is impossible, biblically speaking, if you're consistent with the theology of the Bible, if you actually pay attention to what the Bible actually says and not what you think it says or wish it said, if you just stand toe-to-toe with what the Bible says, it is impossible to deny God's election and future plans for Israel and Jerusalem. It's spelled out in black and white right here, and either you believe the Bible or you don't. It's that black and white. It's that plain. And I am astounded at the people who deny it. Whereas you have been forsaken, says verse 15, and whereas you have been hated with no one passing through you, I will make you an everlasting pride and a joy from generation to generation. And now the other Gentile nations are going to provide for you and are going to succor you and are going to provide for your welfare and give you food to eat. God puts it this way. You shall also suck the milk of nations. The other Gentile nations are going to nurse you the way that a mother nurses her child. And you will suck the breasts of kings. And then you will know that I, Yahweh, am your savior. How plain is that? God intends to save Israel. And when I have glorified Jerusalem to such an extent that the Gentile nations are bringing their wealth to you to such a degree that it's like a mother feeding her baby child, that's when you're going to know, Jerusalem, that I am your redeemer. I am the mighty one of Jacob. I am Yahweh, who is your savior. Now, I know that I'm stumping on this. I I know that I'm repeating myself. I know that I'm repeating myself. I know that I'm repeating myself. Can I stop that now? I understand that sometimes I sound like a broken record on this topic. But you can't deny that language. And if you do, you're denying the Bible. That language did not come from a particular eschatological bent. It did not come from Zionism. It did not come from any political move. It came directly from God who declared himself to be the Savior 
of Israel and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. This is all about Jacob. Instead of bronze, I'm going to bring you gold. Instead of iron, I'm going to bring you silver. Instead of wood, bronze. And instead of stones, iron. And I will make peace your administrators. And I will make righteousness your overseers. Violence will not be heard again in your land. Is there any violence going on in the land of Israel these days? Yes. Okay, so that's not true yet. But it has to come true. Because that's what the word of God says. Violence will not be heard again in your land. Nor devastation, nor destruction within your borders. Right now there's an iron dome over Israel and Jerusalem just to try to keep down the amount of death and destruction and violence that comes against them. But God says at some point he's going to stop all that. No more violence, no more devastation, no more destruction within your borders. And you will call your walls salvation. And you will call your gates praise. I think that's praise to God. Micah, if you would, turn to Revelation 21, verse 23. Tom, if you would, Revelation 22, 5. It is providential. Sometimes I am amazed at God's good providential timing that we're studying the book of Revelation on Sunday mornings right now. On this past Sunday, I did the introduction, the first five verses of the book. And now, tonight, we're going to jump to the end of the book. Chapters 21 and 22. Now, what you need to know is chapter 21 and 22 of the book of Revelation is the introduction of the new heavens and the new earth, of the age to come, of the new Jerusalem to come. It's past Revelation 20. It's past the thousand years. It's past the millennium. It's the beginning of the age to come and all these promises of a new Jerusalem. And the way that New Jerusalem is described, John uses language that he lifted right from Isaiah 60, which means that the promises of Isaiah 60 had not yet come true when John was writing in 92-96 AD. The same way that Isaiah cast it out in the future, 700 years later, John wrote about it and cast it out into the future and makes direct reference to this very passage, uses the exact same language and description. And so John picks it up and tells us when this is going to happen. So we don't even have to argue about it eschatologically. We've just read all these glorious promises to Jerusalem, and we've all agreed that hasn't happened yet. So when is it going to happen? Well, John tells us it's going to happen in the new age, in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens and the new earth, at the culmination of history. History is going to wrap up in God keeping all the promises that he ever made to Israel. It's amazing. It's the big tapestry of the Bible. Isaiah 60 verse 19 says, No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor the brightness of the moon giving you light, but you will have the Lord, Yahweh, for an everlasting light, and your God, you'll have him for your glory, for the shining, for the outraying of God. In other words, you'll have God in your midst, and because God encases himself in a light that no man approaches, People are finally going to live in the glory of that light and no longer need the sun and the moon and the stars to light the earth. Instead, New Jerusalem will be lit with the very light of God. Micah, if you would, read for us Revelation 21, 23, which says the same thing. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the lamb. And the only thing that John added was the lamp that lights the fire is the lamb, the lamb of God.
Isaiah sees it all as the promises of Yahweh. John sees it as the promises of Yahweh satisfied through Jesus Christ. So when people ask questions like, are you saying that there's two ways of salvation? Are you making a differentiation between the church and Israel and the way those two groups are saved? The answer is no. It's all in Christ. John makes it very clear. It's all in Christ. But the promises to Israel belong to Israel and always have. Every covenant in the Bible, every single one of them, without exception, belongs to Israel. Go read it. The prophets all prophesied of Israel, and they all speak with one voice in promising Israel this glorious future. And yet, it all comes true. It all is satisfied through Jesus, who came to the planet and said, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets is a Hebrew idiom for the Old Testament. The law, the prophets, the writings. That's where we get the word Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevi'im. The Ketavim, that's the law, the prophets, and the writings. It's the whole of the Old Testament. Jesus said, don't think that I've come to destroy all that. I came to fulfill all that. So, of course, the fulfillment of the promises of God would be through Christ. Because in him, we read, in Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen. Why, when we read that phrase, what do we think it means? Through Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen. Which promises of God? What promises of God? The promises of God that you find throughout the scripture, throughout the Old Testament, and all those promises belong to Israel. And through Christ, they are all yes and amen. And through too much of modern theology, they're no, not going to happen. And that is not a good theology. The biblical theology is yes, amen. No longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. Your sun will set no more, neither will your moon wax and wane, For you will have the Lord for an everlasting light. And the days of your mourning, the days of your sadness, the days of your punishment, the days of your crying, the days of your sojourn here on this planet that is full of death and hatred and murder and craziness, the days of your mourning will be finished. Boy, I like that phrase. I really like the idea that the God in heaven is going to wipe away every tear. and There's going to be no more mourning and no more sickness and no more death. We read all of that in the book of Revelation as well. But the days of your mourning are going to be finished, Tom, if you would. Revelation 22.5 says, And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Your sun will set no more, neither will your moon wane, for you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and the days of your mourning will be finished. So, I think this is a really important connection that John has picked up the very language of Isaiah and cast it forward into the age to come, to the new Jerusalem. Which, by the way, is it worth pointing out again that it's not called the new Detroit. And it's not called the new Chicago. It's not the new Paris. It's it's the new Jerusalem. That's very significant that God named the eternal city the new Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem is the place that God chose to place his name. And the old Jerusalem was sinful and decaying. And several times the Gentiles imposed their will on it and destroyed it and burned it and knocked down its walls. That's old Jerusalem. But new Jerusalem, 
that is built on the foundation of the prophets and has gates with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, that new Jerusalem is where God is going to dwell among his people eternally as an everlasting covenant. And the mourning and the sadness is all going to be gone. And John tells us when that's going to be. So, since we're not living yet in the age to come, everybody agree to that? Agreed. Okay, so since we're not living in the age to come, those promises of restoration for Israel, now that we know when they're going to happen, they're going to happen in the age to come, new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem. Now we have to conclude, we have no other choice but to conclude that this is true. Because now we even know when it's going to happen and it's not now. So too often people look at the world as it is right now. And they say Jerusalem's a mess right now. And they say Israel is scattered right now. And they say Israel is being punished by God right now. And they think that's the end of the story. But we happen to be living in the period of God's punishment and scattering of Israel and Jerusalem, just like the book of Isaiah says. But now we also know when all those promises of restoration are going to kick in. And we're going to see so much of that as we go through the book of Revelation. So the more familiar you are with these prophetic concepts, the more familiar you're going to be with it when it shows up in the book of Revelation. What are the 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel? What is that about? It's the beginning of God restoring all 12 tribes of Israel to bring them back to Jerusalem to start preaching, to start glorifying himself, to start establishing all the stuff that he has promised to do. All the puzzle pieces are there. We just have to stick them together. But my point is, and I do have one, my point is, it's all true. And you have to say it's true, or else the Bible's not true. And just because circumstances in the world today don't line up with that, doesn't mean it's never going to line up with that. It's going to happen. Isaiah's got a tremendous batting average going. You have heard my definition of faith. For many years now, I have said that faith is standing on the word of God and reckoning it as more true than your circumstances. And the circumstances of the world right now don't look like what Isaiah is describing. Faith is, this is the very word of God, therefore it has to happen. And just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it's not going to happen. How many people in here believe Jesus is coming back? That'd be everybody. We all believe Jesus is coming back. He's been gone for 2,000 years. Whole generations of human beings have come and gone on the planet, and it hasn't happened. Does that mean it's not going to happen? No, our faith is it's going to happen. It's still going to happen, even though it hasn't happened yet. Our faith is also every single word of God through Jesus Christ is going to come to pass and is going to be true, despite the fact that we haven't seen it yet. But we know it's going to happen because it's God's word. And we know Christ is coming back because it's God's word. And we know we're going to be saved by grace through faith, through the finished work of Christ, because it's God's word. And so if you're going to stand on God's word consistently, you have to admit that God has this glorious future in mind for Israel. Verse 21. Then all your people will be righteous. How? how? How is Steve, whether I'm talking about Steve number one or Steve the sequel, how is Steve going to have righteousness? Because I know both Steves and I know some of their backstory. Oh, and not righteous. How are they going to get righteousness? God is going to impute righteousness to them because of the finished work of Christ. How is Israel going to get righteousness? How are the people of Israel going to be called and actually be righteous? Same way we are. And if God can do it for you, 
he can do it for Israel. And how dare you say that just because he's doing it for you, he won't do it for Israel. That's bad theology. All your people, Israel, will be righteous. And they will possess their land forever. Do you think God, who is eternal, do you think he knows what forever means when he says forever? I mean, after all, there is a kingdom coming that is a forever kingdom, a kingdom that will not be destroyed, a kingdom that is everlasting. And part of that kingdom to come is that Israel possesses the land that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they possess it forever. And they have been in it and out of it, and in it and out of it for thousands of years. Does that mean it's not a forever promise? No, faith is that God said, it's going to be yours in perpetuity. It's yours forever. It's going to belong to you and your children. And I'm even going to go get your children from all the places that I scattered them. And I'm going to bring them back to this very land. And then I'm going to make the Gentile nations bring the wealth of the nations to you. And you're going to be the glory of the nations here on planet Earth. It's a pretty amazing promise. Why is he doing it? Why is he going to do it that way? Your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever. They will be a branch of my planting. They will be the works of my hands so that I may be glorified. God is in the enterprise of glorifying himself. And part of how he's going to glorify himself is to do all of this for undeserving Israel so that they recognize that he's the only God who could possibly do this. And they are going to glorify him. They are going to be his people and he is going to be their God. And he's doing all of that, including saving you for his own glory. To the praise of the glory of his grace. That's Pauline language in Ephesians. That God does all these things to the praise of the glory of his own grace. That's why God does these things. It's why God does the impossible. Why he would take a people group like erring, rebellious Israel and then say, watch this, I'm going to save them. I know it's impossible. I know it's ridiculous. And I'm going to do it. Why? Because only I can. And I'm going to demonstrate that only I can do it. Only God could save somebody like Micah. Only God could save somebody like Ken. And you know, when I mentioned you, Micah, April nodded too hard, too vigorously. I just wanted to point that out. Only God can, and he's doing it for his own glory. And never forget that. Because at some point, you're going to wake up, and you're going to say to yourself, I must not be saved because a saved person wouldn't be like this. I wouldn't act like this. I wouldn't think like this. I wouldn't be like this if I was actually saved. You're not being saved on the basis of you. You're not being saved on the basis of your personal righteousness or perfection. You're being saved to the praise of the glory of God's grace. As a result of that, because you have knowledge of that, you will do good works that follow salvation. But those Good works are never the cause of your salvation because the cause of your salvation does not reside in you. The cause of your salvation is in Jesus Christ and in God himself who is showing the glory of his grace. He did it for Israel. He's doing it to this day. He's doing it for you. We're nearly done. This is the work of my own hands so that I may be glorified. And the smallest one of you, Israel, the smallest family, the weakest of you, will become a clan. Now, some of your translations at that point will say the smallest of you become thousands. The idea is that God is going to increase Israel so dramatically that even the least of the people of Israel are going to become massive families. And the least one, the most insignificant of you, will become a mighty nation. I 
the Lord will hasten it in its time. Boy, I like that phrase. I will do it, and I will do it quickly. If this sounds familiar, it's just like the beginning of the book of Revelation. I will do it, and I will hasten to do it, but I won't start doing it until it's time. And we know when the time is. After the thousand years of Revelation 20, into the new age, into the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, that's when it's time to do all this. And I am completely confident that God is going to do every single detail of it because it is all part of God's glorification of himself. Therefore, he is not going to fail to do any one part of it because God doesn't fail to glorify God. You got it? Got it. So by the way, if God is in the enterprise of glorifying himself, what should we be occupying ourselves with? Glorifying God. We shouldn't be going, well, he's got it. <laughs> he's got that whole glorification thing covered. No, we should be thinking God's thoughts after him and performing those good deeds that God has prepared for us in the glorification of God and in the advancement of the word of God that declares these marvelous, marvelous things. And the more you know and the more you understand not only about the prophecy of the Old Testament, but of God's declarations of how he's glorifying himself in the salvation of Israel, the more confident you can become in the grace of God saving you. Because it's the same God using the same grace, the same technique to save every one of his people. Make sure they know how guilty and how helpless they are so that he gets all the glory forever. Same story. I was told two nights ago by a listener in Florida. He said, every time your congregation says goodbye to the internet congregation, I always reply, goodbye. So for his sake, say goodbye to the internet congregation. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.